Biff Bampop presents Heroes and Villains. And now your host, E.A. Henson. Now, this is a first. I actually have my first returning guest to the podcast. I am joined once again by Alex Schumacher, and we're going to go ahead and talk about his forthcoming book, The Effects of Pickled Herring, as well as his, his career in the comics industry. Alex, welcome back. Hi, thank you for having me back, Eric. It's a distinguished honor I have to be the first returning guest. Yeah, you're the first one to fall for it. That's, <laughs> you know, I am, I am gullible, so, but I genuinely like you, so it's okay. I'm, I'm happy to be back, and I Excellent. thank you for inviting me back. And I've got that on tape, so we're we're good. So, uh, basically, basically, we're gonna we're gonna talk about your new book, but we're also going to just kind of do a retrospective uh, from our last conversation that we had. Uh, the same thing I ask other comic book creators and artists is, what is your earliest experience with the medium? Like, what's your earliest comics related memory? My earliest memory is uh, receiving the Smithsonian collection of newspaper comics from my grandparents. It was, I don't even know if they make coffee table books anymore, if that's even a thing. But, uh, you know, when we were kids, uh, they had those big oversized coffee table books because they were these big show pieces that everybody would have and it would give any visitor sort of, a, you know, insight into your interests and such. So one that my grandparents had was from the Smithsonian collection. Uh, and it was the collection of newspaper comics. So I became kind of obsessed and infatuated with the newspaper funnies. And that was what I was aiming to do for a very long time after that. But my my very first really profound kind of memory with regards to that was definitely that book. And it had, um, you know, it had Schultz in there. But I think Schultz was kind of the newest or, or, well, the, that iteration of Peanuts, which I think was in the 80s or something when that book came out. So uh, it, he was kind of one of the last ones to be covered, but it went all the way back to the Yellow Kid and, you know, had Captain Easy and Doonesbury and just basically all all the big hits and, and even some, you know, B-sides, as it were, or, or more obscure uh, comics in there, too, that I discovered because of that book. So it was... You know, seeing all the different styles and, uh, you know, sensitive humor and kind of having that sort of look into the process at that young of an age, I think, impacted me pretty greatly because there were a bunch of, you know, footnotes and, and um, you know, different descriptions about how the ideas came about and how the specific comics that were being exhibited uh, were written and developed. So it was a very cool uh, sort of introduction to what the process of making comics was in, in a sort of subliminal way, I guess. So that kind of set you on the path. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, for better or for worse. <laughs> comics. Um, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yeah, it did, though. It did. I know that was a really bad fun. Um, but yeah, no, it, it definitely... It, it got its, you know, claws in me at that young age. And, and uh, that along with Saturday morning cartoons, which there were some fantastic ones when we were kids, you know, in the late sort of 80s and early 90s, that the, the kind of animation renaissance mm-hmm. that came out at the time where the creators sort of took back over. Um, and, and, you know, the inmates were running the asylum again, which in animation is as it should be. 
Yes. So it was, it was really great to see all of those uh, creators come back into play. Uh, so th those two things, I think, were, had the most impact on me as a young creator and storyteller. Now, it's it's funny that you mentioned the animation renaissance, because just prior to us speaking, I was uh, flipping around on Reddit and somebody had posted a clip from uh, early Ren and Stimpy. Yeah. Now, that's definitely, you know, for better or worse, uh, John Kay was one of the prime inmates running the asylum. Uh, yeah. Now, com comics wise and animation wise, do you have any standouts? Like, correct me if I'm wrong. Were you a Walt Kelly guy? Do you, did you go for Absolutely. Pogo? Okay. Oh, yeah. I think he was in the Smithsonian collection for sure. And and his stuff blew my young mind. I mean, it still blows my mind now. His his brushwork is just, you know, unparalleled. And, and his his ear for dialogue and dialect, you know, and, and he was doing the, was it the Okifinoki? Okifinoki? Yeah. Whichever, something like that. But it was, you know, it was a, yeah, that, that Walt Kelly was huge for me. And I'm, I don't think I discovered him necessarily before Disney, but I remember seeing some similarities. And I think he actually did work for Disney before he was a comic strip uh, creator, a cartoonist, if I'm not mistaken. But I, I remember that kind of being, uh, you know, kind of in an, an direct line to Walt Kelly and being like, oh, this is kind of like this other thing I love. But his his wit and his storytelling was vastly superior in, in many ways. Uh, and with him being such a, you know, such a voice, huge voice in the industry, it's weird because I feel like I don't see people talk about him very much anymore. No, I, I don't either. And because I think comic strips in general, the, the funnies are just not the sort of, you know, cultural touchstone that they were at one point. You know, there was a time where, cartoonists in the newspaper you know were just as famous as actors and musicians and were invited to all the big galas and art centric events and that i don't know if it's directly related to things like the decline of print media i mean I, i'm sure that had an effect on it i know that had an effect on it and which in turn was one of the reasons i stopped pursuing a career in syndication because you, you know the more i got into pursuing it the more you know the it crystallized the idea that this was not really a viable uh living anymore and and you know not only were the syndicates refusing to debut a lot of new artists you know they just held on to those legacy strips in perpetuity and and like even after the original creators would die they would have somebody replace them and keep that strip going so it just it became very clear to me as uh, the further I got into that endeavor that it probably wasn't the wisest avenue to explore. So, and I think that, so I, I guess all that is to say, you know, we stopped kind of paying attention to it as, as a public, you know, at some point. So I, I don't think they really had the effect that they once did, unfortunately, because a lot of them are, you know, some of them didn't necessarily stand the test of time, but I think a lot of them did. And, you know, there were some brilliant things being said in those family strips. Oh, yeah. And, you know, tangentially related to that, um, Bill Watterson just put out a new book within the last couple of months. And I really feel yeah. the era of 
newspaper funnies really ended when he pulled up stakes with Calvin and Hobbes and went off to enjoy retirement. Have you had a chance to check out his new book yet? My my wife actually got it for me as uh, a present when she was she was at some bookstore here in San Francisco. I don't remember which one. Um, but yeah, she did get it for me. I haven't had a chance to read it yet, but I'm as soon as I heard the news that he was coming back and not, you know, in, in a completely different genre, no less, you know, he's coming back with this sort of horror story. So I'm, I'm really intrigued to read yeah. it, but I haven't yet, unfortunately. Not to spoil anything, but I loved it. I know a lot of people out there were anticipating, longing, hoping for another Calvin and Hobbes. And it's very right. much not that, but it's very much on par with kind of the social messaging that he had with his Calvin, Calvin and Hobbes strips. So I think you'll think you're in for a treat. Yeah, that's awesome. And, you know, I know artists are sometimes beholden to that weird expectation that you're supposed to do the same thing throughout your entire career because that's what your fan base loves. But I think if people are really fans of somebody, they, they'll, you know, accept the changes and the, the progression because every artist wants to do that. Like nobody, I remember some interview that John Lennon gave in his like, you know, post Beatles hard hat demolition of the myth uh, phase where, you know, uh, he was saying like, it was going to end at some point that was, it was unsustainable. That kind of, you know, that kind of sound. And especially because art continues to evolve, but was his point, but he was making the joke that, you know, we didn't want to be, 60 years old and having them introduce us like here they are again yesterday you know like <laughs> bring them out on their wheelchairs because it's just this like he, he knew even then that you know while while built upon the backs of the other Beatles you know he had a career that he wanted to explore and and that's not always something you can do in the confines of what people of the confines of others expectations so I think we need to be able to allow people to progress like that. So I, yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. I'm not expecting Calvin and Hobbes. I just, I'm a fan of Watterson. And you just brilliantly segued yourself into my next question. So uh, Mr. Butterchips ended, uh, it feels to me recently, but now with everything you were saying, does that in any way speak to you deciding to end Mr. Butterchips as a weekly strip? Yeah, my efforts were going more into graphic novels, you know, the the graphic narrative sphere, I guess, or long form, because I always did the graphic storytelling. Um, But with things like Mr. Butterchips, it was a page per installment, very episodic. Mm -hmm. So um, my, because kind of where I think the, the lifeline is to, the industry right now is in graphic novels and it is for, for, you know, children's literature specifically, which is something, you know, despite <laughs> Mr. Butterchips and decades of inexperience, which was the web comic before that, um, which were very much catering to adult humor and adult sensibilities. I had written a picture book, you know, and, and had that published by a vanity press um, called wandering in the words press. Uh, 2014. So that's going to be 10 years old this year. You know, I, I was developing and pitching animated series for kids before I was doing Decades or Mr. Buttership. So the the kid lit, you know, that that category was always something that I loved and wanted to be a part of. So when the opportunity arose, you know, getting a literary agent and having this 
avenue to um, make it a reality to, to live in the Kidlit area in, in that, um, you know, that world, I jumped at the chance. So it was, it was a bit of a balancing act because I was like, okay, how do you do this weekly strip, which was weekly, you know, when it went with SLG publishing in, in 2021 or whatever it was. Um, it wasn't, it just wasn't viable. And Mr. Bedchips had been around for six years. I felt, I truly felt as though I was getting to a point where it might be getting a little stagnant. You know, I had said what I wanted to say. I tried to, you know, change up the window dressings and and say it was a new version of it, but it was kind of the same version. Uh, and, and, you know, I was, I still enjoyed the character, but, you know, it's kind of like Bill Withers, you know, when, once he said what he had to say, he stopped making music. And I remember this documentary. Uh, I mean, obviously he's not going to now, unfortunately, but I remember watching the documentary about him. I think it was called Still Bill, where they asked him about that. This just point blank, you know, asked why, why don't you make music anymore? And he said, because I don't necessarily feel as though I have something to say. And I, I find that very relatable in, in this context. And so it wasn't really, I mean, it was bittersweet to walk away from any character that you have spent that much time with and dedicated, you know, six years of your life to, but it was time to move on. It was time to progress. And it felt like the right move for me at the time. Which I totally get. And, you know, my personal feelings of being crushed that the uh, strip ended aside. Uh, <laughs> which which know. means more than, you know, I take it as intended. <laughs> Because I absolutely loved the uh, collected edition you put out, and I was happy that we were getting a recurring strip, you know, selfishly, of course, but I, I get what you're saying, that it had to end so you could progress in your work. Uh, are there any hopes for a collected edition of the daily or the weekly strips, or is that something that uh, you retain the rights to? Could you do it if you wanted to? Asking I, for a friend. I, I probably could ask for a friend. Tell your friend that I believe I could. Uh, I, I've talked to Dan. Uh, Votto, the um, president of SLG, uh, kind of about that. So it, their their main focus isn't comics at this point. I mean, I don't think it has been for a while. And anybody yeah. who followed their storied career, I think, have known that for some time. But they did, you know, Mr. Butterchips doing that collective edition was kind of one of their first forays back into publishing comics because they hadn't for a while. Uh, but they're doing, and I think they're still kind of dipping their toes in very slowly at this point, even, you know, three years on mm -hmm. or whatever it is. But, you know, because sometimes it's just not financially viable, as, you know, as much as you might want to do it, as much as the company is willing, it just doesn't pan out. And I think that's partly what happened to SLG. Uh, so they're just kind of slowly doing things, I guess, in a roundabout way. What I'm saying is, yes, I hope that at some point we will do that, but I don't quite know when. And and it's one of those that is in a you know, long queue of other projects that you know are kind of you know farther up on the burner um, sure. for me. So uh, yeah, it's definitely not out of the realm of possibility. I just okay. I couldn't give you a timeline if I tried, but I'd love to do that because I know, you know, at least two other people would love to see that. And you know what? Three <laughs> enough is good, good for me. But you know, yeah. Mr. Broadchips had a little following. So I, I imagine if if I gain 
a little bit more notoriety that might actually be something that's worth pursuing. Um, I, knock on wood. Hopefully that happens sooner rather than later. I will accept that uh, that answer. That is. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> I'll just collect them for you and send you like a, a zine. There you go. You, you can just get into uh, book binding, just bind your own books and everything. Yeah, absolutely. It's a nice cottage industry. I'm sure the, there's no overhead for that. No, none at all. I'm, I'm sure you break even every single time. So with uh, with you know with Mr. Buttership's ending, I was you know kind of keeping an eye uh, whenever I decided to dip into social media to see what you're up to. Of course, you have a newsletter which people can sign up for at your website. Um, but it was kind of you know like what's this guy going to do next? And mm-hmm. you know just getting like kind of drip fed little portions of the new books, like seeing it's like pieces of a, of a mosaic. Mm-hmm. and just kind of trying to figure out where it's going. And this is my roundabout way of talking about your new book, The Effects of Pickled Herring, which will be out on March 26th, 2024. Um, you were kind enough to send me an advanced copy, and I've been kind of playing it close to the vest, <laughs> uh, probably just for my own amusement, just kind of letting you twist in the wind a little bit. Which uh, I will naturally do anyway. Like The, the assistance is is very funny but yeah i don't even need that assistance man i would be doing that regardless well uh i i absolutely adored the book it was uh i wasn't uh and i know we were talking about the kid lit a bit and this is targeted towards middle grade readers and i'm sure there's essentially yeah I'm, i'm sure there's like i don't know if there's a perceived stigma that comes along with that title i'm sure like when young adult fiction was all the rage they're like you know, adults were reading the stuff, but yeah. uh, it, it didn't feel like what my perception of a kid lit book would be. Mm, okay. So Good. it, it did <laughs> feel like the, you know, the characters in the story, they're at that kind of uh, transitional age and, you know, that plays heavily in the book. And uh, it really did feel relatable. It, like the story traveled. It was something that, you know, culturally I couldn't really relate to, but I, the experience overall was universal to me at least. Yeah. And, yeah. And I mean, that was absolutely the intent is, you know, for me, this is a very fertile time for people to tell stories and include their own, you know, cultures and traditions and heritages because there was a time where that wasn't really that widely accepted. And, so I, I certainly wanted to take advantage of that a little bit because I do love Judaism as, you know, something that, you know, has a lot of nostalgia for me, sentimentality. It connects me to my family. I think a lot of the traditions are utterly beautiful. And so I did want to share that with people. But the the real, you know, inflection point, hopefully, is like you said, just the normal human emotions that everybody goes through. We all feel joy, fear, depression, elation, you know, whatever, confusion. These are all very natural things. And it doesn't matter what, you know, your race is or ethnicity is or, you know, country of origin is. We all feel these things. So if that's at the heart of a story, regardless of whether or not people enjoy the story, I feel like if you have that as your foundation, then people are going to find something to relate to it. And it won't be because I've read books where you you feel super disconnected. And sometimes that's intentional. Sometimes it's a unreliable narrator situation. Uh, But I think for 
kidlet for this age group, it's important for them to feel included in that audience. Like you're directing that story to them for them to have that, you know, in their toolbox to say, oh, okay, I'm not the only one who feels that. And, you know, if, if that happens to even a few kids, that's great. But if they relate to any of it, and, and I think every culture, you know, and or background or whatever it is, you know, everybody has some ceremony or ritual or, you know, practice that that is, you know, could be perceived as similar to something that that's in the book or, you know, your family embarrasses you or, you know, they're, they're very uh, relatable experiences, you know, and they're, they're kind of, you know, zhuzhed up with with Judaism. But the, the, the main point is that he's a normal kid and just like feel so abnormal because of this, this, you know, heavy weight that's kind of placed on him because of his religion. And that gets him, I guess, question, you know, he has a little bit of a crisis of faith too, not to give too much away, but that's a lot of pressure to put on a 12 year old in a lot of ways, you know, telling them that you're now you know, mature enough and, and of age to accept the, the, you know, commandment to accept that, you know, you'll live your life by these very specific and at times rigid set of values and rules. And so, you know, I, I think everybody feels that at some point, not again, not necessarily from Judaism, but there's always a pressure when it comes to growing up. And sometimes that can feel heavier than others. But I think when you have some sort of cultural aspect, you know, in there, it somehow compounds it a little bit, or at least it did for me. And, and I'm like a late bloomer in every way imaginable. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so I don't, I don't know that I actually realized, you know, just how much of an effect all of those experiences had on me. Um, but, but that, but they were important to share, I feel, because that's, it's speaking of, you know, being relatable, it, it is a part of who I am as a person. And when you're sharing those, oftentimes intimate portrayals of yourself that gives people a, a clue uh, you know it, it, it includes them as to who you are and gives them kind of a you know behind the scenes look a little bit to some degree and and so you're not just some stranger writing a book or telling them a story anymore you're somebody who they they kind of understand to a degree yeah the book uh it did feel very personal um and I, I know it's not a straight up autobiography, but how much of uh, you is in the book? Like, I, I know it's you have your uh, your brother and your sister characters. Uh, like, how how much? Uh, like, what's the percentage? Like, of how much? How much of this is is you? I, I'm asking. Uh, if I had to break it down, probably something like seventy thirty. Okay, seventy percent being drawn from my life and events that actually happened now. I mean, and, and maybe that's a little bit of an overestimation because there were countless liberties taken, you know, while recounting those stories. I mean, not the least of which was the fact that, you know, my, my sister and I did have our bar and bat mitzvah together when we were, cause we're 10 months apart. So uh, for, you know, a month and a half or two months or something, a month and a half or so out of the year, uh, we're the same age. So my parents thought, you know, wouldn't it be swell? Wouldn't it be cute and a mitzvah to God and all of this that, you know, if you guys shared in this day together. So we did. 
Uh, and, you know, at the time, I think there's this sense that some of your thunder is being stolen. And so there's a little bit of maybe resentment that you feel. You it's your know, special a, day, but you have to share it with your sister. Yeah, it's like a quinceanera. Like they shouldn't, I mean, you don't do a joint one of those. There's a reason for that. And I mean, it's supposed to be about the individual, but I, you know, <laughs> having a lot of distance from it now and, and, you know, in hindsight, it's, it, what it really is, is kind of this beautiful, you know, memory that I have with my sister. And it, you know, it's, it's something that nobody else is going to go through with us. And we went through it with each other. You know, we were in those trenches together in Hebrew school and <laughs> going through our Torah portions. So it's something that bonds you forever. And, and you know, I'm, I think every brother and sister who are close or every sibling who, who's close probably has a story like that in their back, park, in their back pocket that like truly bonded them or, or, you know, gave them something where they, you know, have a, have a really shared memory like that. And then that's definitely one for my sister and I, which I see now in adulthood with a modicum of maturity. I'm not going to say that I'm incredibly matured, but I'm I'm a little bit more than I was when I was 13. Luckily, I'm sure my wife is thankful for that too. <laughs> yeah, the benefit of hindsight. Now, yeah. uh, without without getting like too far into spoiler territory of the book, it, it's you know difficult to talk uh, at length about the book that I loved. Um, but there, there's a section I think maybe a quarter halfway through the book where the art style shifts dramatically, mm -hmm. which I was not, I was not prepared for. And, yeah. uh, uh, just the, like how much when people read the book and they should, uh, how much time did that take you for those illustrations? They're, they were just incredibly lush and detailed. And I had to, you know, flip back to the beginning of the book because the change was so dramatic. I, I, I was curious if, if you brought in somebody else to do the artwork because it was okay. such a, a 180 from your style that I'm accustomed to. Yeah. And then kind of, you know, snaps back into place after that short section too. You're talking about the grandmother's story section. I yeah. Assume. It's like three pages. Yeah, like three or four pages. Um, so the, I, I like to play with styles I have found as I've gotten older. I, I do have a style that I've developed and, you know, whether people love it or hate it, most people will tell you that it's pretty unique to me. And if they see that style, they know that I've done it, which is, you know, one of the highest compliments that I could think of to receive as an artist, to have a recognizable style that, you know, love it or hate it belongs to you and, you know, heralds some work that you've done. So, that, you know, I, I, I always, when I, when I, as much of a compliment as that is, and it is, uh, it also, makes me want to ramble as it were, you know, it makes me want to try something else because I, you know, again, it's the same as doing a comic for too long for me, because it, there are some people who love the comics and the create and the characters that they've created and they will end up running with those characters and those storylines for decades, which I find incredibly admirable. And, and, you know, it's like a magic trick to me for people to do that. But, Personally, I tend to get restless when I've done something for a little bit too long. So the, the graphic novel itself was a way to, to pivot a, a bit in, in the way that I was telling stories and the types of stories that I was telling. So then even within the book, 
you know, I had, I think it's something like 230 some odd pages when it's all said and done. So even inside of that, I think, geez, I'm going to be drawing, you know, these same characters in the same way for 230 some odd pages. So let's do something fun. Okay, there's this section where grandma's telling a story and it veers into fairy tale kind of area, you know, fairy tale kind of zone or pastiche. So, and again, not to give too much away, it, it just occurred to me that a very interesting thing I could do with that is play around with that section and sh display it, show it as though it was an old storybook. So I did some research online of a bunch of old, you know, storybook and fairy tale book illustrations by, you know, the masters who I cannot even hold a candle to, but gave me a lot of inspiration and motivation. So those four pages uh, came out of that, wanting to do something different. And, you know, not just as show pieces, but they actually work thematically within the book because she's telling oh, a, a in, in context. Uh, yeah, 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 definitely. Yeah, great. So I'm, I'm glad that worked. I'm glad you said that. So each one of those pages, because uh, the pace that I was on for most of the interiors um, was I was penciling, I think, three or four a day and then inking two to three a day for, you know, 10 months, I think, when when all was said and done. Um, so those pages, the fairy tale pages, uh, I, I think I spent a day, at least a day penciling and a day inking each one, if not more. So we're talking, you know, 14 to 16 hours um, on each one of those pieces. And and like you said, I mean, that a lot of that just came from the, the heavy hatching, which was something that I, I employed a lot more uh, during my, my life you know, Mr. Butterchips and decades of experience. And so you talked about changing up the art style uh, for this. And so part of that was to appeal to a younger audience. So I sort of softened what I had been doing before. The lines are a little more, you know, round, in, you know, instead of angular, there's not as much cross hatching. So it doesn't have that kind of, uh, I don't know, itchy or <laughs> you know, vibe to it, grungy vibe to it. So I took a lot of that out intentionally. And and that was also fun to challenge myself with because that was almost stripping it down to as as basic, as minimalist as I could possibly go. That was that book. And some of that was was um, dictated by the, the timeline itself, but some of it was also that it was a necessity for... Uh, drawing in younger readers because they're not the type of artwork that I had used before was just not something that's going to appeal to younger kids. And so it was, it's also in color, which is something that I haven't done a lot of previously. Uh, my first graphic novel, which came out over 10 years ago at this point, which is kind of amazing. Uh, the employment or the unemployment adventures of Aqualung. That was probably one of my only books that have come out that's in color. So now 10 years later, it's kind of coming full circle to some degree where I have another, you know, full color graphic novel coming out. But so that was part of the consideration behind the endless etching, you know, removing that factor from it was I knew that the color was going to make up for some of that because it does. And, and my color shout out to, Alan Ferguson, who did the colors, he did a remarkable job. And 
it just he he found the way to complement it the simplicity of it the the sort of you know stripping away all pretenses you know approach to it I, I think he matched that so perfectly with his work and and I was really I was really jazzed by you know when he sent me the final colors it was almost it was almost like seeing it again for the first time which I know sounds kind of cliche and silly but but it really is when I you know when I've been staring at those black and white pages for you know almost two years and then to suddenly see them in a completely new way was was thrilling and, and invigorating and, and it really helped to drive me over the finish line because we weren't I wasn't quite done with all of the artwork when he started you know showing you know posting um the the colors uh to our dropbox uh but it was yeah it was so fascinating because it, it just almost appeared to be a different book yeah that's really cool and like uh like you were saying i was so used to seeing your work in black and white that just seeing it in full yeah. color was you know a, it was a bit it was a bit mind-blowing you know just yeah, for, like i said for me too and that's that's a testament to alan's wizardry i mean it really is he and this is a guy who's never colored a comic book before he's never really? this no is shit. His novel wow so well, that, kudos to him for knocking it yeah. out of the park on that absolutely now you said you uh the production time on this book was about 10 months or so so you've been okay. sitting with the book for about a year more or less and we're you know as we record this and this will be going out shortly we're about a month away from it coming out uh when i finished reading the book you know there was a you know, it was, it was a nice closed loop. Uh, I got resolution from the story. Uh, you know, it spoke to different parts of me. I felt good. I, I sat with it for a while and just thought about the book. Having spent all this time with the characters, um, is there more for these characters? Do you have, uh, you, I, you've been living and breathing this book for the better part of a year. Uh, do you have the desire to continue their stories on? Oh, through, well, yeah, that's, that, that is true. <laughs> Which is wild to think about now. But yes, they're uh, potentially mm -hmm. uh, for the time being, I think we're focusing. There's a couple other projects that we're sure. focusing on in the interim. But yes, there is another at, at least one more book that I could potentially do with Micah uh, and, and the family, um, which would jump forward a few years. OK, um, mm -hmm that's kind of how I have it planned. I, I don't know. I don't want to give away too much at this point. Yeah. On. But yes, I mean, the, the short answer to your question is yes, because, you know, also the, the other thing about diving in, you know, with both feet to the kidlit sphere is all these memories from my childhood start coming back. And, and not that I had some sort of like idyllic, fantastical childhood where these amazing things happen, but I think it's just the opposite where I had, all of these pretty relatable experiences happen, but, you know, relatable in a way that's specific to me. And you just, for some reason, there there was a point where those floodgates just opened and all of these memories started pouring out. And so I have, I have a number of, of books that are, you know, based on some of those. Some of that went into, you know, effects of pickle pairing. Some of that is, has been earmarked and is in, you know, different, drafts and outlines for the second Micah book. So if I get the opportunity, you know, maybe a few years down the line, I would have, yeah, I would jump at the chance. I would love to be able 
to tell more about that story because it's about my family. And, you know, in a lot of ways, it's, it's Romana Clef. It's, you know, fictionalized reality, however you want to refer to it. But it is, it is my family. And in, in a way it's, it's like in this long line of, you know, oral passage of history, you know, long before there was recorded, you know, languages, all, you know, stories and myths and history, family history, whatever. It was all passed down, you know, from generation to generation through storytelling. So in a way, I've kind of come to this place where I, I, I realized that that's what I'm doing to some degree with these new books, where it's, it's, not, it's not a legacy thing for me or like leaving my, my mark on humanity. It's, it's not that. It's, it's just a recording, you know, of, of my history, of my family's history you know, kind of of the zeitgeist at the time, because a lot of that just naturally lends itself to your story if you're telling it in a current, you know, time. But, um, yeah, I think that's the answer. <laughs> now, I had uh, questions about uh, yeah, Micah's father, because he's really, uh, if correct me if I'm wrong, he's kind of a non-entity in the story. He's just not... Yeah. Uh, was that a, a conscious choice on your part to kind of streamline the characters that were in the book or uh, did it, you know, add pathos to his character since he's a young man with, you know, the only closest male relative he has is his grandfather who generationally is, you know, not quite in step with him. Right. So uh, is, is the character of the father out there? Is he floating around? Is that something that would be explored further? It's just, or, you know, uh, walk me through the, the decision to have the character be a single mother. Sure. Uh, well, again, kind of piggybacking on, on the last answer, it, that, that was how I grew up. So it was something, and I think it's something that a lot of people have experienced and, and representation right now is, is not only important for, you know, minority groups and, and, you know, gender groups and sexuality groups, which it is vitally important for all of those groups. But I think also the representation of family and, and different kinds of families are, should also be a part of that. And I think they are, you know, in a, in a handful of books. But it, it was part of, you know, sharing, again, having a shared experience because this is something that a lot of kids are going through and maybe aren't really sure how to process that or feel about it. And it, I didn't necessarily delve too much into Micah's feelings about that, you know, in this book, because it's, it's kind of a trust my audience thing that, you know, this is a family who has survived for much of their time together without him and have decided that they don't really need him. And they have the support system of the grandparents, which, you know, was something that I grew up with and was always this kind of beautiful thing that I, I didn't even, I don't think realize until much later that not everybody has that relationship with their grandparents because for most people or a lot of people at least you know your grandparents are people who you know relatives who live in a different part of the country that you see during big holidays and that's kind of the role they have in your life and they spoil you and they love you and it's you know you have a good relationship with them but they're not a daily fixture like they were for me in a lot of ways and I think partly, at least in part, why I was under this um, belief that that was a normal thing is because I grew up in a place 
where the majority of the population um, were Mexicans. So you see their family units and a lot of them end up living together. You know, a lot of generations, especially when they move, you know, here, you know, a lot of generations live in the same house. So to me, it seemed very, you know, like very normal, very natural to have family units live like that. So when we lived five minutes away from my grandparents and we saw them every day and, you know, they were a big part of our upbringing and our disciplining and, you know, all of the, all of the factors that go into bringing up a child or, or children, they were a huge part of that. And so the, the, it was something that, because I wanted to focus on the grandparents too. So yeah, part of that, like you sort of touched on, it, it was, it was a strategic uh, omission based on, you know, it was a focus on what Micah was doing and going through, you know, with his bar mitzvah and trying to fit in at his school and his sort of fractured relationship with his sister, who he used to be super close to, and then his grandparents, in fact, in, in his life. And so there's the mom and there's a couple other characters too, but it, it really starts muddying the waters. If I were to try and go to, into a backstory of why the father's not there too, and it's just you know, I, I try to imply or, you know, in part make it understood that he's not really, you know, he's not only not a concern of theirs, he's somebody who they haven't needed for a long time. And they, that would be, I think, the big thing that I wanted to come through because they, they were their, they were their family. You know, they had everybody that they needed they had all the support that they needed. And I felt that growing up, you know, now thinking back upon it again, it's, it's, Hindsight is 2020, and I, I'm really grateful for my upbringing. And I had, you know, my mother. I had, you know, my aunt did actually moved up with us at one point. She's a, you know, a secondary ancillary sort of character in the book too. That, that's based on my aunt, and we just had this lovely family unit. And you know, my grandfather was a singer. My grandmother was a storyteller. My mother is an actress. My aunt is one of the funniest people I know. It, it was almost inevitable that I was going to do something entertaining. And the, from a young age, it was something that I always derived great pleasure from was making other people laugh and entertaining other people. So mm -hmm. as I got older, I think it, it became apparent that my written word or, you know, illustrations in the graphic novel format you know, those were going to carry the, that entertainment for me because I, I don't think I have the fortitude or, you know, necessarily sharp wit <laughs> to think on my feet and be like a stand-up comedian, which was something I did consider for a hot minute. Um, I definitely wouldn't be a good actor. So it just, it, you sort of, when you come from that kind of creative vortex of a family in, in a very positive way, it, you know, you sort of need to find out your own, your, find your own path out of that. And I think for me, that was books and comics. Yeah. I, I think that comes across well. And I especially like the inclusion of the grandparents because uh, speaking for myself, I grew up, you know, close with both sets of my grandparents because they lived, you know, 20 minutes away in Detroit and my mom's parents would come in to babysit me and my sister on occasion. We would see my dad's parents like every other weekend. Mm -hmm. So there definitely was that, yeah, the, the generational aspect of the story really spoke to me because so often, like to your previous point, grandparents are portrayed as people that live in a different part of the country or, you know, they come in for holidays and that's it. But right. yeah. you know, so I, I liked seeing that in the, the book. Oh, good. Yeah. I'm glad that, that 
that hit home for you too. And and, I, and I'm sure there will be, you know, a number of people who have sort of similar, um, you know, experiences growing up that, that lived close to their grandparents. And honestly, coming out now, I think there might even be more of the core, the demographic <clears throat> that we're marketing the book towards. I think that's become more and more of almost a necessity nowadays where people like our age who are having the kids that are going to be buying these books, you know, tend to either move back home or live in their hometown because that support is necessary with the way that our economy and the, the housing market and all of these things that have just fluctuated and kind of decimated any hopes of, of really having, uh, you know, being a homeowner. I think that happens a lot more. So I know that sounds, <laughs> that came off sounding like a very negative thing, but I, I, my hope or my, what I kind of infer from that is maybe more kids these days will be able to relate to that because they probably did grow up around their grandparents or closer to their grandparents. And of course that's just conjecture, but I'm, I'm grasping at straws here for <laughs> relatability, I suppose. <laughs> Yeah. And, you know, I, I think you're right on the money with that. Just, you know, being our age, you know, where a lot of us are going, thanks a lot, Ronald Reagan, you know, for, yeah. <laughs> for the for mess sure. we're in currently. Uh, yeah. So speaking yeah, I, about you know, white people don't understand, that's a whole other conversation, but yeah, right. <laughs> that, that really is the, you know, the inflection point. Mm -hmm. So speaking um, about what's next. So you're, ramping up to promote the book and you said you have a couple of things you're working on any anything you can you can tease us with tease yes okay. uh, i'm fairly good at that i've i've <clears throat> cut my teeth with social media posts uh, on teasing so i feel like i'm you know fairly adept at the art of the project tease um so one <clears throat> is kind of more in a fantasy genre it's an all ages book. I commissioned a friend of mine who's a wonderful artist. His name's Randy Haldeman. I don't think that spoils anything. Uh, if anybody wants to find him, he's on, I think he's mostly on Instagram these days. Uh, but Randy Haldeman did the artwork for it. And we have it being considered by a publisher right now. And it's an exclusive submission uh, because it's, you know, what part of what you're doing while you are pursuing a career in the arts is, you know, if you're smart or if you're lucky, and maybe I was a little bit of both, you build these networks of people who are, you know, maybe in similar positions or similar phases of their career. And you sort of, you know, bolster each other and encourage each other and you watch each other rise. And maybe if you're lucky, which in this case I was, one of those people gets into a position where they can do something for you, such as becoming an, act, an acquiring editor at a really cool publisher and then okay. you can send them your manuscript and the accompanying artwork. So that's the situation for that one. I don't, I feel like it'll be way too easy for me to start going into the story, <laughs> but we have, me and Randy have our fingers crossed for that one. And, and we, we love the publisher and the, the editor who I submitted to has been a good friend of mine for a while. So if they would be kind of a dream pairing, if we were able to do that, that's one of them. Okay. Um, another is I was, we've, this has been kind of in talks for a while, but a friend of mine put out a memoir of hers. Yeah, I, I uh, know what you're talking about. You know who I'm talking about. 
so there, I don't know if I'm supposed to be talking about this, so we won't mention the, their name. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there may be a graphic sequential adaptation of said memoir that I may possibly have signed on to illustrate. And I so, may be looking forward to that. <laughs> in, in the hypothetical situation where this was a reality. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yes, I'm sure. I, I, I appreciate that you'd be looking forward to it. But that might be in the works. Uh, and then I am also revising, funny enough, the manuscript that initially got me signed by my literary agency. Oh. So I, I wrote it back in 2017, 2018. Mm-hmm. It sort of far, falls squarely in the boy and his dog category, but it's a lot more complex than that. It deals with certain issues in animals that I haven't seen discussed in any of those books. And I love, I love that category. I mean, who doesn't love the, you know, human and their dog stories? They're always wonderful. But this one touches on some kind of sensitive aspects of of deciding to adopt a dog and some things you may encounter that I haven't seen uh, covered ever in, in that category and something that I, you know, surprise, surprise, had a personal experience with. So I wrote about that in 2017, wrote that manuscript, took several months to research how to query a, a literary agent because I don't have any contacts to that world. I don't have any ties to that world absolutely i've always wanted to be a part of it but the little as far as the literary world and i go i had no relation to it whatsoever so everything for me was from square one so i I took a lot of time to research how to write manuscripts that was the first thing i researched all this (laughs) time it really does and i think you know that can be a deterrent for people who you know say they want to be a writer or a comics creator or whatever then they realize how much work it is and it becomes a deterrent. And I get it. It it is a ton of work and a lot of that can be thankless. So I completely understand. But for me, it's something that I I just, I was compelled to continue to follow. Um, So when I, I, I did the research for the um, query letter, figured out how to write that after a lot of missteps and not so great drafts of it. Um, and sent that that manuscript out into the world. And so I got um, one response, one, no, I'm sorry, I received two or three requests. So that's what you receive from an an agent when they're interested, because you initially send a literary, or I'm sorry, you, you initially send a query letter, and depending on the agent's submission guidelines, sometimes that's all you send, and you have to hook them with the query letter. Sometimes they request the query letter and the first chapter, whatever it is, everybody has different guidelines. So if they, there are then three responses from that. It's either a no, and in this day and age, it's just widely accepted, which I I absolutely hate because I think it's completely disrespectful, but I understand the time constraints. No answer means no, essentially at this point. Mm -hmm. So if, if they just don't respond to you and you know, there's, there's typically a window of response time on, the agent's website because you really need to do you really need to research which agent you're submitting to you need to make sure that they you know represent what you're doing you need to make sure they're looking for clients all you know so there's a little bit of research that goes in there um so then so some you have to hook with just 
<laughs> the literary or the query, which can be a, a tall feat. Luckily for graphic novelists, I had the manuscript. I did about 15 pages of artwork, sent that out. Uh, so uh, a guy named Peter Ryan, uh, who was the first uh, literary agent to reach out about, or the second literary agent. And then, so there were three altogether, I think I said. Um, so you get the responses, which I think I skipped over because I'm just rambling now. Um, the three responses are the, the no means no, sometimes uh, um, a form request once in a while. Um, but then you either get a partial request, which is just that, you know, I want to see through chapter 10, I want to see whatever it is, a partial of the manuscript or a full request where they're put them, they're interested, they want to read the whole thing. Okay, great. So I got a full request from three agents. One of those being the guy that I that I um, uh, went on to sign with, who's Peter Ryan from Stamola. So he he stepped down from being an agent and and then kind of referred me to my my now agent Allison Hellers, who's absolutely wonderful, and she works at Stamola as well. So it was kind of nice. It was a it was an easy transition. We didn't have to do any or paperwork. I didn't really have to query at that point because uh, I had this new project. So, because Peter couldn't do anything with that initial book. Uh, I guess mm -hmm. I should have mentioned that because uh, we did go out on submission with that and just field it. Either we fielded no's or like nobody responded. I have no clue what happened. I just know that Pete told me, you know, it didn't go anywhere and he thought he had taken it as far as it could go. Okay. Well, one of the lessons that you learn when you're a late bloomer and you've gone through this enough times is when one project doesn't work, you move on to the next one. So that's when I wrote Effects of Pickled Herring. and Because kind of, middle grade was, I wrote the first one as sort of more of a young adult, but I was, you know, kind of guided or counseled by Samola to, to maybe veer a little younger, go middle grade. So that's sort of the genesis, uh, par partially the genesis of the Effects of Pickled Herring. Oh, great. Yeah. So I, you know, speaking of the book, which will be out March 26th, I cannot wait to get my hands on a physical copy of it. Is yeah. this, uh, where can we find it? Uh, right now, the, the publisher that I'm with, I, I believe their focus is kind of the digital landscape. It will be in bookstores, but, it, you know, it's on Amazon, on IndieBound, on Barnes & Noble, on, I believe I even saw it on the Powell's site, because I think it's listed now. Um, I'm not, I'm not sure whether or not it's available for pre-order. My guess would be yes, since, you know, it's only about two months till it's released. Yeah, it was just, uh, I was just looking, doing some research before we logged on here. And I did see that it is on the Canadian uh, bookseller Indigo. It's on their website. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so, so I think it's, it's out there. Um, uh, but yeah, so that's that, all, you know, main channels anywhere. You get your book and, you know, I encourage people to order it from their local bookstore too. I think it's important to support all of those. So please, 100%. If, you can, if you have a local bookstore near you, you know, order through them. That'd be, I would appreciate that. Excellent. And where can people find you online? Oh, all the, you know, all the usual suspects, Twitter, uh, Facebook, Instagram, although Twitter, I'm, I've kind of been backing off. So mainly Instagram and Twitter these days. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, Instagram and, and Facebook. I've gone back to Facebook a little bit. So Instagram is at AJ Schumacher Art. And that's pretty nice. much my handle for any social media. I'm on Blue right. Sky, 
technically, but I'm yeah, not me too. Technically, yeah. So I think Twitter and Blue Sky are probably where I'm least visible and least accessible. But Instagram or Facebook, or, or my website, alexschumacherart.com. I'm happy to receive messages through there, comments. It's it's very affirming when artists hear back from people who actually like their work. So if you're out there and you have an artist that you love, if it's not me, that's fine. Whoever the artist is, please tell them that you like their work if if you haven't yet, because it means more than you know. Make yourself known. Alex, I really yeah. appreciate you taking the time, uh, sitting down with me. This was fantastic. Uh, everybody should go out and pick up The Effects of Pickled Herring uh, wherever finer books are sold on March 26, 2024. Alex Schumacher, everybody. Thanks again. Thank you, Eric. I appreciate it.